The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you've been traveling with us for the last few weeks, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we're in the 15th chapter, but we actually are kind of following up on last week. We started Luke chapter 15, and in the first 10 verses, we saw Jesus tell two parables, two stories that teach us a truth, and they both teach us the same truth. It's how do we allow heaven to rejoice? What can we do here on this earth that causes heaven to just stand up and shout and praise? What causes God to rejoice? And there's many things that that can make that happen, but the two we looked at last week was when the lost person is sought after by God. God rejoices in the lost. Why? Because he created those people and wants to have relationship with them. But he also rejoices when we go searching, when people go looking for the lost to bring them into relationship with God. We saw that very clearly last week. And we'll finish the third parable. It's often known as the prodigal son. We'll finish it today, wrapping up this section in Luke chapter 15. And as we do so, though, I want us to take our time because there's really a bigger question here in this third parable. And so we'll start with that today before we jump into the text. Who is God to you? Who is God to you? When you think of God, you picture him in your mind, you try to, and I think he's too big for us to really ever fully grasp or fathom. But when you think of God, who is he to you, we, we have different images. For some, I, I think we see a stately older gentleman rocking on the front porch, kind and, and benevolent, caring. We, we picture that. Others, the same image, but it's a, it's a cranky old man on the front porch yelling at the kids to get off his lawn and straighten up and where are your parents at? We, we have this much different view of a similar image in our minds. For some, God's just a figment of our imagination, something made up by human beings to be this religious crutch to help them get through the day. For others, God is kind and gracious creator and sustainer who, who cares not for sin, but who provided a way out of that through his grace. And his love is what pursues all of his creation. That, that would be more of an accurate portrayal of who God is, but still hard to imagine. And, and then yet for some listening today, you don't know. I, I don't really have a good idea who God is, but that's okay because in this parable, in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24, we're going to see an image of God the Father that I believe is so important and so accurate for us to embrace. Because in embracing this image of who God truly is, it will then allow us to correctly respond to him. So we've got a lot of verses. I'm going to read them straight through. Try and follow along if you can. Here we go. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. Jesus continued with his third parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. Give me my share of the estate. And This seems a little forward, and it is, but there's even more. In asking for this, what the son, the younger son is saying is, 
Dad, I wish you were dead, and since you won't just hurry up and die, I, I, you're dead to me. Go ahead and give me what's going to be mine in an inheritance now, and I'm out of here. Okay, so as a parent, if any of my children came and requested that, I would be very reluctant to honor that request. But we see right here in the rest of verse 12, so he divided his property between them, the two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. You can go do some language work on that, and it's exactly what you think it might be. Just picture what the most wild living you can conjure up in your mind would be, and that's exactly what this son went and did with his father's estate, with his inheritance that he received too early. He took it, the blessing And he went and he squandered it in wild living. I always, I always picture Las Vegas when I'm seeing this. He he left his country farm, went to Las Vegas. I'm not against Las Vegas. There's tons of things you can do there that are great, but there's also every kind of debauchery that you can find right there on the strip. So I picture this young child not having any direction, but being incredibly, incredibly entitled, going to a Las Vegas-type place in the Middle East and just squandering everything. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was actually a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So not only is he broke, but there's a huge food shortage. Verse 15, so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, a foreigner to him, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now, it's not stated directly that this young boy was a Jew, but Jesus is speaking to a completely Jewish audience, so they would naturally assume that. And for a Jew to be near a pig, an unclean animal, that was the lowest of low jobs. And that was the job he had to take after squandering all of his father's wealth. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. No one there was going to support him. No one there was going to help him. He's literally looking at the pig's feed going, oh, that looks good. I'm so hungry. I would even eat that, but I would get in trouble when he finally came to his senses. Now, this is a parable. It's a story, and and I think there are these moments. Some people call it rock bottom, whatever you want to call it, but there's this reckoning. I have messed up. I have done wrong. I need to change my course because there's nowhere further for me to fall. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? My father's servants have more than they need. And here I am starving to death. Verse 18, I will set out, I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I've done what was wrong. It was so inappropriate. It was so off base. I'm sorry. That's, that's my plan. I'm going to go tell him that I repent and I'm sorry. Verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've lost that title. Make me like one of your hired men. Make me a servant on your property. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Okay, are you picturing this? The prodigal had gone. The father didn't know if he would ever see him again. Prodigal comes to his senses and returns home 
and he's working through his speech, knowing that he's getting closer to his father's estate. He's working through what he'll say, how, how his father will respond, and he doesn't have to wait until he comes to the front gate because here comes this man running at him. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I don't think in a million years the son would have ever thought that that would have been the response of his father. No way, no way. After being treated like that, would a father run out and meet his wayward son? No chance. There's something that you can easily overlook in this parable, but everyone listening to Jesus on this day would have known it. In the first century, men did not run. You didn't do that primarily because of what you wore. You wore long robes, and you can't run in a long robe. You would trip and fall. So what did you have to do in order to run? You had to gird up your loins, a term we don't use anymore, but you had to take your robe, wrap it up between your legs, and tuck it into the belt of your garment. You literally had to put on a big old diaper to run, and that's what the father did in order to throw his arms around his son and kiss him. If you're picturing this, how undignified the father must have looked running out to the son, but he didn't care because he loved the son and the son that was gone, that was lost, has now come home. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he didn't even get to finish. And I'll take any job here. You don't have to pay me, just feed me. I, I know I'm not worthy to be in the house. I know I'm not worthy to be in the family, but anything is better than what I came from. I, I'll take anything, the scraps that you might give me, but I want you to see in verse 21, the repentance. The repentance of the son. I'm sorry, I've sinned. Please, please take me back in some way, shape, or form. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, this is a big day. Bring the best robe in the house and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, the family seal. Put it on his finger, sandals on his feet. No son of mine is going to look like this. Bring the fattened calf, the one that they hold for big, massive celebrations. Bring that calf, kill it, because we're going to have a feast today to celebrate. Heaven rejoices when one who is lost is found. We're going to celebrate today. For this son of mine, verse 24, was dead. He once was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And so the family came together, and they began to celebrate. Pretty cool story. Showing three characteristics, I believe, of God. God is the father in this parable. These are characteristics that you may have entertained in the past or, or that they may be new to you. But the first one I want to highlight is that God is unshakable. God is unshakable. The son insulted the father in the most horrible of ways, left with all his stuff, had no intention of coming back, but instead had to come crawling back with nothing. Now, if I'm that father, I may take my son back, but it is not going to be in the way and with the joy and the love that this father does. And thank goodness I'm not God. Because there are things that can throw me off. There are actions and words that can be spoken to me that will cause me to hold a grudge, but not with God. There's nothing you can do that will throw God off. He already knows what you're going to do. He created you. He knows what you need. 
We think there's certain things, certain sins that we just cannot come back from. Activities that God will look at us and say, because you are like this or you have done this, you are out for good. We think this, but I want you to know that that is not true. The truth is sin is sin. Sin is sin, and God can deal with your sin. He proved that through sending his son to this earth. God has no sin ranking scale like we do. Sin simply means to miss the mark. And Romans tells us we all miss the mark. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all do it, and God is fully capable of taking care of it. We need to stop seeing God like we see ourselves, because while we are shakable, God is not. There's nothing you can do that will throw him off his game. He's unshakable. We see that in this parable. The second thing we see is that he is patient. So incredibly patient. I often joke, but there's nothing funny about it, how many times in a week, in a month, in a year, does God look down at me, Todd, and go, really? Again? Golly. I... We just keep dealing with these same things, man. What, what is, what's wrong? What, what more do I need to do? But that's said with love and with patience and from a God who wants more than anything to see me restored to my original created intent in his image. He's so patient. God can be hurt time and time again, and still remain patient. Just like this father was devastated when his son left, ran off for no reason to sow his wild oats, to do whatever he was going to do. But patiently he waited till that day where he saw that son coming back and he ran to meet him. God can be this patient because his love is unconditional. It's without condition. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more or to cause him to love us less because his love, as infinite and beautiful as it is, is unconditional. And we must know this about him. I can't fathom his patience. I really can't. Take a moment just to try. Picture the most patient person that you know. Go ahead, do it. It took me a while to think through all the people I know. The most patient person you know. Think about them for just a second. For me, what I came up with, it was, it's my grandma. She's, she's deceased. She's been gone for a few years. But it's my grandma on my mother's side. Most patient woman I've ever seen. 20 of us crammed into her little three-bedroom house for Easter. Everyone's losing their mind. She's just calmly making sure everybody has what they need. In chaos and crisis, when my mom dies, she just... She accepts it, and she weeps, and she goes to the Lord, but she's, she's patient, and she's kind, and she's gentle. She's just, I never saw anything just rattle her. I never saw it. She's so patient. And yet, compared to God, she's nothing. That's how patient he is. And church, that should encourage you. Because, I don't know, I need that patience from him. I need that unconditional love because I do plenty of things on a daily basis 
that if we saw God the way a lot of us see God, would say, he can't possibly still want a relationship with me. Someone who would do something like this. Someone who would come and say, I wish you were dead, but I still need you to give me all the stuff I need. I wonder how often we accidentally or very intentionally treat God this way. I wish you weren't around, but since you are, I'm going to leave and do my own thing, but I'm going to still need you to provide for me. I'm going to still need you to take care of me. The third characteristic that we see in this parable is that God is undignified. And, and I use that term very intentionally, um, but I want you to know he's not undignified in his character. There's nothing undignified about who he is. He's undignified in his response to us. He doesn't care how he looks. He doesn't worry about what you might think. He just pursues you. He just runs to you. He throws his arms around you. He kisses you and he says, you are my child. Here's your robe. Here's your ring. Let's celebrate. He's undignified in his pursuit of restoring you from your sin. And we see that so clearly here in this parable. He got up, girded his loins, and ran to meet his prodigal son. He is willing to become undignified on our behalf. I use that word because in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 6, verse 22, David, the king of Israel, had just brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, its rightful place. And he was so excited that the presence of God was once again going to be in Jerusalem. He was so excited as he was worshiping, he accidentally exposed himself while he was worshiping. He was so excited, and one of his wives, Michael, kind of pulls him aside and says, oh, how great a king you are. You showed yourself to slave girls. You're such a joke. And David responds to her in 2 Samuel 6, 22, I will become even more undignified than this. Do you think that's undignified when it comes to worshiping God? I don't care. I'm just going to worship. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes, okay? Yeah, I wish that hadn't happened. That wasn't my intent. But my heart was good. These slave girls, though, that you spoke of, I will be held in honor because they knew what I was doing. They could see my overt love for God and his presence. And I wonder, church, how often God in his undignified pursuit of us is met with us responding to him in the most dignified of ways. I can't allow my heart to just respond to you. I can't let my soul just worship you. I've got to uphold this appearance. I have these parameters in which my worship must fit. It has to be done in this posture with this type of music, making sure that it's never too loud or never too quiet. It needs to be done with this instrument. It, it can only be done in private. I must, I must do it with my eyes open or closed. My hands have to be down or up. We have all of these dignified ways passed down to us by traditions and our own insecurities that we think this is how one's heart responds to God. And David goes, no, you just start getting your worship on. That's what you do. And you do it because of the God that you're worshiping and his willingness to become undignified in his pursuit of you, shouldn't that be met in our response to him in the same way? I know we got to walk through that. But today, as we wrap it up, I, and as we think about how we respond to God, I don't want you to let anyone or anything stand in your way 
You may feel that what you're doing is already slightly undignified. Well, I would say, think how much more so God's pursuit of you is undignified. Pursuing the lost, stepping outside of our comfort zone, to cause heaven to rejoice in the restoration of one that was lost, now being found, that that is something that will cause us to be pushed in ways that none of us really like to be pushed. But we do so in response to the God who pushed his own son out of heaven to come down and pursue us. In action, we should be actively pursuing in leading the lost towards a loving God. That's what we should be doing in action. Even if it makes us look undignified to our friends and our family, we should be doing that. But in word, since we talked about action last week, in word, what do we do? How do we, in word and in worship, respond to a God who rescued and restored you? What should your soul's response be to him? Now, for some of you, Listening, you, you have not been rescued. God's right here wanting to, but you haven't made that decision. And, and you need to think long and hard today about how God does see you and how you see him. Because if you see him correctly and know what he's done to pursue you, I think your heart will desire more than anything else to be with him. Once you see him for who he is, it allows you to respond the correct way. But I ask simply, how will you approach God today? Will you do so humbly and with obedience? That, that's what he desires. He's wanting you to draw near, to embrace him, and to allow him as your father to embrace you and say, come on, my child, let's celebrate you being here. That, that comes through, through you understanding who he is because if you see God as an angry guy sitting on the porch, you're going to come in defensive. All right, I, I don't know how this is going to work. I, I, I don't know if I, how I need to talk to you right now. If you see him just as this benevolent benefactor, you're, you're going to come in so prideful saying, I deserve this. But you, but you don't. He gives it freely. How are you going to respond today? I would hope that nothing matters, your traditions, your age, your voice, the people around you, the posture. I would hope that your response today would be to a loving God. I would hope that your response today would be your soul crying out to him. Whatever it looks like, whatever it should look like for you, I hope today that you'll do that. That you'll take the next few moments to respond and maybe even get a little bit out of your comfort zone, maybe even get a, a little undignified in your response to a God who is unshakable and patient and undignified in his pursuit of you and his desire to see you restored and renewed to him. So I hope, I hope, church, that in light of who he is, you would respond to him and your response would be pure, spirit-filled worship. Father, help us do just that. Woo our hearts, consume our minds, let our voice and our breath be our praise and worship to you. We need you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for bridging this gap so that we can 
be in the arms of the Father. May we feel those loving arms around us now. We thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.